Hello again, you're very welcome back to the iTag podcast, Technology and Innovation from the West of Ireland. This is Philip Smith. I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Kingsley Aikens. Kingsley is a former CEO of the Ireland Fund, has spent time with the IDA and Chorus Troctala, and currently CEO of the Networking Institute. You're very welcome to the iTag podcast, Kingsley. Thank you, Philip. Delighted to be here. Being the CEO of the Networking Institute, and that's what we're gonna that's what we're gonna focus about today. Could we start with your view on what are the the main characteristics of great networkers? Uh, wow. Well, you know, one of the things I learned along the way was um, always try and hang around with people who are good at networking because if you do, some of that stuff kind of just kind of wears off and you can rubs off on you and you can learn from it. I have to admit, I'm a founder member of an organization called CASE, and CASE stands for Copy and Steal Everything. So I figured out that if I could hang around with people who are good at networking, you know, I might learn something from it. And, and actually, I did. I learned some, I think, key characteristics of people who are good at networking. First of all, they work hard at this. They understand that this just doesn't happen. you you got to put in the hard yards for this. They're humble. They, they don't brag. Um, they don't keep score. They don't say, hey, Philip, I did you a favor six weeks ago. You owe me one, mate. You know, they, they don't think like that. In fact, they think like farmers who plants a seed, you know, waters, nurtures in the spring uh, through the summer and just knows there's kind of going to be a harvest. They know that the way to people they don't know is through people they do know. They understand they've got to be high tech. You've got to understand technology and the incredible opportunities and power that technology allows you, particularly for networking. But they, you've also got to be high touch. So they kind of get that balance right between high tech and high touch. They understand that um, your weak connections are really, really important. In many cases, more important than your strong connections, which sounds slightly counterintuitive. But actually, when you think about it, you know we all have a tendency to hang around with people just like us. There's a, there's a fancy Greek word called homophily, which means basically birds of a feather flock together. We, we have a tendency to do that, and, and that's fine. The only problem is that we tend to hang around people not only are quite like us, they think like us, they uh, have friends like us, and that's all fine. But the world we live in is extraordinarily diverse. And so building weak connections allows you to kind of bridge your way into all sorts of different and diverse networks of people. So I think all of that kind of stuff is important. And I think the great networkers realize that, you know, there's two types of information in the world. There's formal information and you can Google it, you can read reports and that's fine. But formal information is available to everybody and you can't really compete on what's available to everybody. And then there's informal information, suggestions, nudges, tips, winks, ideas, all of that kind of stuff. And that becomes really, really important. Very often, that's the difference maker. You mentioned I I worked with, with IDA and we always looked for what we used to call the tipping agents in different industries and sectors, people who could nudge a deal in Ireland's direction. Because very often the, the, the difference between winning an, an FDI, a foreign direct investment deal for Ireland, and coming second, very often the, the difference was minuscule, marginal, wafer thin, but the implications are absolutely gigantic. And in your world, uh, you know, the story of Intel when they came to Ireland was fascinating. And the Irish Times wrote us back page article about this a few weeks ago. Basically, Intel came and said to us in the IDA, you know, we're not going to go to Ireland, we're going to go to Scotland because it's a larger market in the UK and they have more electronic engineers. And Kieran McGowan, who was head of the IDA at the time, into his you know, ultimate wisdom, uh, recruited a, a recruitment company to seek out Irish electronic engineers, none of them working in Ireland. Uh, spoke to over a thousand of them working for great electronic companies around the world. 
And and they said, look, if Intel come to Ireland, we, we'll be very happy to come back and work for a great company like Intel. And Intel changed their decision and came to Ireland. This was a very marginal decision, a wafer thin decision, but the implications for Ireland, absolutely enormous. So I think they're all the little elements that go to make up great networking, great characteristics. It can't be read in a book. You have to get out there and meet people and talk to people and interact. It's more important than ever networking now. I know we've been through a kind of a, a, a paradigm changing 18 months. Why do you think networking is even more important now than it ever was? Well, I think, first of all, just in life, you can't go it alone. Uh, you you got to have network your way to success in whatever field it is. And there's this myth of individualism out there that, you know, life is about the individual, the rugged individual taking on the world, the kind of the Marlborough man, the Lone Ranger, you know, and winning. But, you know, that's just not true. I mean, life is all about collaborating, connecting, cooperating with other people. Opportunities don't float around on clouds. They're attached to people. So if you're looking for an opportunity, you're really kind of looking for a person. And, you know, networking, you know, all the research shows that networking is a way to do lots of lots of good, solid things. It obviously helps you with your business. It helps you in your career. It helps you attract staff, all that good stuff. But the research also shows something else. People who have strong and diverse networks live longer, are stronger mentally and physically, earn more money and are happier. I kind of like all of those. Uh, and also, I think one of the great crises of our time, which gets a little overlooked given what's going on right now, is loneliness. And networking is, I think, a terrific antidote to loneliness. But in a very practical sense, you know, networking is the way you're going to get your next job. I mean, 80% of good jobs are not advertised. They don't show up in newspapers. So your network is going to help you in your career. And just think about the world we live in now. The average company lasts about 20 years. The average person in a C-suite position lasts about seven years. And yet we're living longer and longer than ever. I mean, 50% of the people who reach the age of 60 who are listening to this podcast will reach the age of 90. So now we have to think in terms of quite a long career. I'm right now in my, as I call it, my third act. Um, but, you know, I've been preparing for this and setting the seats for this for many, many years and building a network which would help me in this process is very important for it. So I think they're the sorts of things um, that make networking really, really important. And obviously with COVID, it becomes even more important now. Platforms like LinkedIn have completely changed. The, you know, the, uh, there's one side of LinkedIn that people maybe, how shall I put this, people can be a bit cynical if it becomes like a, a PR machine. When used to actually connect with people and offer things out, plant that seed, like you mentioned earlier, platforms like that have really changed the way that people interact with each other. Look, I totally agree. I mean, I think LinkedIn is fascinating. Um, I don't know what the numbers are, maybe 700, maybe 750 million people around the world are on LinkedIn. And here you have, you know, these people have given this company all their education details, all their work experience and their hobbies, et cetera. They said, you can have it and you can have it for free. And, you know, Philip, I don't know about your business, but in my business, free is a very compelling price point. You know, <laughs> So then COVID hits us, you know, and we can't go anywhere, but suddenly we actually can access people. You, you overlay that with what we're doing now, Zooming and WebExing and all that kind of stuff. We're now connecting electronically with anybody anywhere in the world virtually for free. I mean, it is extraordinary. And in many ways, I think has saved our bacon a little bit in terms of networking because 
you know, we've now the opportunity during this lockdown and who knows where it's all going to go, uh, you know, to be not geographically restricted, uh, to not have to spend a ton of money connecting with people, um, to not have to travel all over the place and you know, end up doing nothing. You know, all of this is uh, some real pluses about the electronic dimension. Now, I think there's severe minuses about the sort of lives we're all having to live at the moment. Um, I, I must say I'm personally kind of struggling a bit with it. I'm missing my, you know, connections and networks, my traditional ways of meeting with people. I'm missing what I call serendipitous occasions of bumping into people. And I think there's a that we are paying a bit of a price right now during COVID. In fact, an interesting book written by a Yale professor called Marissa King came out recently called Social Chemistry. And she said a very interesting thing. She said during network, during COVID, uh, our networks have shrunk considerably. Mm. But in particular, she said, men's networks have shrunk by about 30% and women's networks have not shrunk at all, she said. And she explained that by saying that men traditionally like to do stuff with other men and they like to uh, you know, go down to the pub and have a pint. They like to go and watch the football. They like to go and play golf. They like to fish, all that kind of stuff. Whereas women are much happier connecting on a more emotional level and having conversations and chats. And, and that's why she says, we've paid this price during COVID. We've tended to hunker down um, to a small group of people, which is very often family, and then just a few other connections and buddies, et cetera. And we, we've totally ignored that kind of that kind of outer ring, if you like, that concentric outer ring of weak connections. And, and as I was saying earlier, they're really important because they bridge you into different groups of people. So when we go on, I don't think we're going to go back. I think we're going to go on to a different way of working, uh, living, learning, traveling. But when we go on to that new system, we are going to have to kind of dust off our networking skills and get back in the saddle and um, get out there uh, and meet people because that's that's what's the generator of business. And it's also what we all want as kind of social animals to do. And that's being starched out of our lives over the last 16 months. So it's going to be an interesting challenge for us all to get back into that. That's a really interesting insight on the gender difference. That yeah. definitely resonates with me. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some people are better at this than others, Kingsley. So how how can you network when when you, when you can't network? It's, it's it's hard enough when we used to be able to get out and meet. Well, you know this. You make this point. Some people are better than other at networking, and I, I know I hear what you're saying. But we often mix up. I think networking and sociability. We have this tendency to think that the most sociable person is, by definition, the best networker. In fact, what's really interesting is that people who consider themselves as introverts can often be better at networking than extroverts. And that sounds a little odd. And, and what I mean by that is that, you know, they do it with decency and authenticity and integrity. Uh, they ask questions and they use the greatest skill of all in networking. They actually listen to what people are saying. Whereas the extrovert is kind of, you know, really only minorly interested in what you're saying. They want to talk about themselves. They want to wow you with some facts, some information. They're looking over your shoulder to find somebody more interesting to talk to. They spread their social capital very thinly amongst a wide group of people. Introverts tend to have a much smaller group of people, but a much more authentic and intense kind of connectivity to them. So I, I think that's that's important. Um, also, you know, nobody's born a great networker, although you often hear that phrase used about somebody, oh, they're a born networker, but actually it's not born. This is a learned experience. And one of the challenges about the whole topic of networking is that it's not taught at school or college. Um, and yet everybody in business thinks it's hugely important. And here's, here's the challenge. 
you know, if you go to school, you go to college, you get a score, a mark, a metric, a grade, and that determines how you progress and even where you go after you finish school and college. It's all about those metrics. Then you go into the big, bad world of business, and suddenly a whole series of things matter a great deal. They count a lot, but they can't be counted, such as your attitude, uh, your perseverance, your grit, determination, your humor, your trustworthiness. All of these sorts of things come back to issues of character sometimes of personality, and you can't measure them. In fact, quite hard to even teach them. And they come about from you know the whole social fabric in which you are brought up, which is a combination of family and society and friends and clubs and sports and hobbies. All that kind of stuff's important. And so I think we often mix up that networking and sociability issue. I know I'm speaking to the CEO of the Networking Institute, <laughs> but networking sometimes has an image problem. <laughs> in that, you know, it can be seen as manipulative or something along those lines. Why do you think that is? I think you're completely right. It's got an incredibly lousy image. It, it conjures up images of sleazy individuals late at night, night flicking out business cards in a bar. You know, you, you, you wake up in the morning, you find Philip Smith's business card and they turn up your trousers. Where did that come from? How did that happen? And, and that's kind of the, the whole image. Also, most people hate it and hate the notion of it, hate the concept of it. But here's an interesting thing. There's a big difference between the noun having a network and the verb networking. When you say somebody is a good network, that sounds pretty positive. Sounds, you said, sounds interesting and it's a good concept, a good notion. But networking, now that's sleazy, inauthentic, uh, all about sales. And frankly, it's you know a little bit dirty. So I think there's real problems with networking. That's one of them. Another one I mentioned, not taught at school or college. Companies don't have strategies for it. It's not a KPI. You know, you're not assessed. Um, and compensated and rewarded for networking. Uh, it doesn't show up in the recruitment process. Um, and, and this whole notion of, you know, you have a network when you, and, and, and what I call an organic network when you're growing up through school and college and friends and church and all those different things. That just happens. You don't go and network in those at that stage of your life. So that's your organic network. But as you progress through life, you have to become intentional, strategic, and thoughtful about your network. And many people forget to have to make that shift. And many people also forget that as their career progresses, the technical skills they needed to get their job in the first instance, critically important as they are, um, become less important because everybody has them and you can't compete on what everybody has and relationships become more important. You know, I think that's a really interesting kind of inflection point that many people miss as they progress up through their career, they think that the technical skills they needed and that got them their job will soar, allow them to soar through their career. And it doesn't happen. And then a lot of people, I think, in their career, they say, you know what? I'm going to join this company. I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to do a terrific job. And I'm going to let my work speak for itself. But here's the problem. Work doesn't speak. <laughs> Other people speak. And so, you know, this notion of, you know, as Sheryl uh, Sandberg calls it, the tiara effect. You know, I'm just going to work hard. Like everybody's parents, my parents gave me the advice starting off in my career is work hard, keep your head down and keep out of trouble. Actually, pretty poor career advice on reflection. Sometimes I certainly won't be giving it to my kids. So, I, I, you know, I think there's some definitely important uh, problems with networking. It's something that's really important, but it's not urgent. 
of course, we all live our lives doing really urgent things. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree with you. Challenges with the word and the name and the concept. Those type of skills that you talk about become the currency of how well you do or not, as the case may be. The way you've outlined at Kingsley, it's nearly like there's a process, like as in intentional networking. Can you outline some of the steps that people should be thinking about in terms of being intentional and, and working through it nearly systematically. Yeah, well, I, there is a process. And, and why I it, this is important and I think more important than ever now is because we're, we're going to be entering into a period, we are in a period of intense disruption. You know, you know the VUCA concept, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity, that's just the norm. I mean, McKinsey put out a report the other day that said in eight major economies around the world, 100 million people are going to have to switch occupation between now and the year 2030, which is not that far away. So we're looking at immense disruption in your world, Philip, of technology. In fact, if I had said to you about 10 or 11 years ago, I'm, I'm in my Uber on my iPhone booking an Airbnb in Galway, the only word you would have understood would be the word Galway, because those other things weren't around 10 or 12 years ago. But the question is, what are the things that you know are going to be common parlance 10 years from now? And we haven't even been invented yet. I mean, I'm just watching, uh, was it was it Avalon or somebody putting in a purchase order to buy hundreds and hundreds of, of small, tiny little airplanes that are going to kind of hover around like uh, commuter planes. But yes, there is some process around this. And it's driven by a couple of fundamental questions you have to ask yourself as, a, as an individual about your career, um, and, and which is, you know, is my network good enough for where I want to be in the next few years? And what do I need to do now to get ready? you know, to prepare myself for these, you know, dramatic changes which are happening? What do I need to do with my network? And the only way you can really answer those questions is to audit your network. And that means to actually print it off and really look at it. And you, you'll discover a few things straight away. First of all, you can get rid of a lot of redundant entries. You know, you, you know, you lived in Boston for six months. I was there for a few years. I don't need the dry cleaners in Boston. I'm never going to use them again. So you can clean. We sometimes say prune your network and watch it grow. So you can clean up your network. You'll also discover you've got some uh, enormous gaps in your network. You don't know anybody in aircraft lease, leasing or tourism or law or insurance or something. And then you'll also discover something else. And I did this a lot during lockdown and during the last 16 months. You discover you had some terrific connections in the past and you've just let them slip. Nothing happened. You didn't have a row. You know, life got in the way. You know, you went this way, they went that way and you've lost touch. So I call them, you know, I think the hidden strength in all our networks is what I call dormant connections. So during lockdown, I've been ringing every week. I ring one person I used to know really well, used to like but just, you know, move country, lost touch. I've had, the, I've had over 50 conversations. There have been fantastic conversations. I've taken off where I left off. They've moved on. I've moved on, learned lots of things. So I think that's an interesting exercise to do. The second part of the process is actually to, uh, to segment your network because not everybody on your network is the same. And we all have this wide you know, electronic cocktail party of, uh, of, of connections. So you need to put them in a bit of shape. So I, I look at a shape like a pyramid. And at the bottom of the pyramid, to me, I have a contact. And a contact is a name on my network. And for the life of me, I can't remember who they were. I must have met them at a reception, a party, a football game, a nightclub, who knows, some connection. And I, I put them on my Outlook, and but I don't know who they are. So that's pretty damn weak. But moving up the pyramid, you then have a connection. And a connection is I know them, they know me. If I call them, they'd know who I was. Uh, and vice versa. There's an element of familiarity there, but we're not doing anything. That's better, but still not 
a strong connection. And then moving up again, I have, I call it a relationship. So I know them, they know me. I'm doing something with them. We're doing business together with each other. We like each other and we trust each other. I mean, we live in a world where trust is at its lowest level in recorded history. So trust becomes really important. And trust is not an event. You don't meet somebody and trust them tomorrow. You know, trust is something, it's not even deserved. Trust is earned takes a long, long time to earn, can be lost in a nanosecond. And then at the very top of my pyramid, I call it a friend. I have friends who are friends and I have people I work with are friends, but I don't have many in this category because my definition of this category is somebody you could call on their cell phone on a Sunday afternoon. And I, I wouldn't do that to many people. It nearly would be the people you'd call in a crisis or a, you had a problem. So when you put a bit of shape on it, you can then begin to apply the next piece of the process, and you know, this is a, a three-hour workshop thing, so I'm only going to tell you very briefly, but it's about research. It's about identifying people. It's about cultivation, which is taking people on a journey of ignorance of you and your organization to a position of passionate zealotry, and that can take years. And then it's about solicitation. You know, Asking is the most powerful marketing tool that we all have, and we often assume that people know what we want, and they don't. So you need to be precise in your asking and in your soliciting. And then the final phase of this network process, I call it stewardship, which is kind of like after sales service. You know, the number one reason somebody gives up doing business with another person or organization is they detect a spirit of indifference. We take their business for granted. Frankly, we don't make enough fuss about them. So we used to have a five-way thank you strategy for everybody who committed to us. We thank them in five different ways. So that's a really interesting piece of kind of psychology in many ways, because when, when you treat somebody, a customer really, really well, not only do, do they speak well of you, but they stay with you and you have a lifetime of support and all of that. So that's kind of like a sort of a cook's tour of, of the process, but there is process. It's not something that's just in the air out there. There's a way of doing this. And, and like all things in life, if you follow this process, you have a greater chance of success than if you don't. The, the after sales service kind of concept like feeding and watering the relationship is you know, otherwise it'll die on the vine you could you know, wither there's so many gardening analogies there but it, <laughs> but that's really what it is it has to be nurtured and it, part, part of what you mentioned there Kingsley puts personal branding in my head so you mentioned earlier um you know work doesn't talk people talk yeah so yeah. personal branding is Again, it's another thing that potentially has this reputation of of being yeah. kind of self-serving. But yeah. people don't know what you're doing or what you're good at or what your unique selling proposition is. Then how do you expect to kind of them to do business with you or to approach you with with opportunities? It, it's a really important aspect of all of this. Yeah, look, and in life, we all pay more for a brand than we do for just a generic product. And that's just the reality of life. And I agree with you. It, again, has a slightly kind of sinister, sleazy dimension to it. Personal brand sounds a bit like, make you sound like a tin of beans in some way. But actually, you know, successful people are successful brands. That's, that's just the reality. And everyone has a brand. You can't opt out. In fact, interestingly enough, not having a personal brand is having a personal brand. And it's not what you say it is. It's what other people say it is. It's about your reputation. And, you know, as Jeff Bezos just, uh, defines reputation, it's what somebody says about you when you're not in the room. 
So, you know, that's very, that's very important. So the only question is about your personal brand. Do you want to determine what it is or do you want other people to determine what it is? And when you let other people determine what it is, it's generally not the kind of the personal brand that you're really all that uh, interested in or keen on. And, and the reality of life is that every day we're being judged all, all the time. Uh, and make, people make snap, snap judgments. In fact, very often they have a notion of you even before they've met you, just from what they've heard. And that comes back to what people say about your reputation, your trust, and your brand. So, so you know, I'm a big fan of that. I was also, I was always a big fan of a guy um, called Tom Peters. I don't know if you remember the American management consultant. He wrote a famous article, and it was called Me Inc. You know, he said, you are chairman, managing director, and CEO of a startup company called Me Inc. And if you don't take responsibility for your own life and take, take it into your own hands to shape and craft it, you know, somebody else will, and it won't be the sort of uh, Me Inc. that you want. So I think all these things become really, really important. There was a, a wonderful woman called Carla Harris. She was 35 years on Morgan Stanley in the United States and on Wall Street, uh, African-American, um, fantastic, fantastic speaker, wonderful TED Talks and YouTube videos. But I always remember a great line I heard her say once. She said, remember that all major decisions about you, your career, your next promotion, your compensation, the next project you take on, will be taken by a group of people sitting around a table in a room and you won't be in that room. And everybody around that table has power and nobody is going to use power on behalf of somebody they don't know. I mean, these are brutal facts of life of truth. And I, I, I guess you'd agree with them, Philip, but you know, you need to learn this stuff. These are the unwritten laws of kind of career progress that, you know, nobody really tells you. Yeah. And you have a brand, whether you realize it or control it or not. You, the, exactly. Yeah. That's the, that's the key thing. A lot of um, a lot of what you're saying is so interesting, and I'm listening to it. So I'm thinking an awful lot of engaging with people and developing that those interpersonal relationships is is being a good listener. Like that is an absolute that hasn't changed since the the beginning of time, right? If you want to develop a relationship with someone, it can't be all one way. Yeah, look, and I'm a huge fan of Dale Carnegie. You know, he he wrote his book way back, way, way back, you know, he's long dead, um, how to win friends and influence people. In fact, the most successful investor in the world in history was Warren Buffett, I mean, an extraordinary individual. One certificate on the wall of his office, that's all he has in uh, Omaha, Nebraska. And the certificate is the Dale Carnegie course that he did. So Dale Carnegie said, you know, he just said some really simple things. He said, you know, the sweetest sound that anybody ever heard was the sound of their own name. You know, he said, to be interesting, be interested. He said, a really good question beats a really good comment. He said, people are a hundred times more interested in themselves and their own needs and wants than they are in your needs and wants. And these are all slightly folksy kind of things that he said, but they're, they're really, really spot on and accurate. And what's lovely about them is that they are just as relevant today in this high-tech world that we're in as they were back then. Uh, and I think there's some really uh, undying truths in this world to do with connectivity. And, you know, we're social animals. We, we connect with each other. I mean, he said, you know, people do business with people they like and trust. And again, that hasn't changed all that much. So, um, so I, I often default back to the likes of Dale Carnegie. Um, I'm a big fan of um, a guy called Harvey Coleman. 
who had a fabulous theory about career progress that I think applies to everybody. And it's shocking in many ways. It's uh, He said, your career progress depends on, he calls it the PIE theory, P-I-E. And P, he said, stands for performance. He said, how well you do your job contributes 10% to your career progress. Now, surely that's daft. Surely it's got to be 80 or 90%. He said, no. He said, he said, doing a great job is the minimum. It's mandatory. It gets you on the pitch. He said, you get paid on performance. You get promoted on what other people think of your potential. Because he said, we're not talking about getting on the ladder. We're talking about going up the ladder. So this is interesting because he introduced these two pesky little words, other people, back to that judgmental, subjective kind of stuff. So the eye of his pie theory is 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 image. And he says that's 30% of your career progress, depends on your image. You know, what do people think of you? What's your boss think of you? What's your boss's boss think of you? You know, what are you known for? What are you a go-to person for? Oh, that's important. But the E of the pie theory, and this is shocking, really. He said E stands for exposure. And that's 60% of your career progress. In other words, who's seen you in action? Who's seen you perform? Who's seen you speak publicly? You know, do you work visibly or invisibly? Do you bring problems? Do you bring solutions? So, you know, all of that stuff is, is fascinating because it's it's kind of the harsh realities of the unwritten laws of, of, of life and of business. And again, people don't get taught this. You mentioned serendipity earlier, these events that happen when we used to be out and about bumping into people. I've heard you talk about funnels of serendipity. What what are funnels of serendipity? So it's just based around this notion of, you know, certainly in, when I look back in my life, one introduction, one conversation can change your life. But they don't happen lying in bed or sitting at your desk. They happen when you're in motion, when you're out and about, when you put your talents on display. Now, when you build an online presence and you get known uh, online, you know, when you talk to strangers, when you build weak connections, you know, when you, um, you know, do all these sorts of different sort of things and stuff, that's when serendipity happens, when luck and chance and randomness. Some people think, you know, random chance is just like winning the lottery or bolt of lightning from the blue. I actually think it's a little bit more like a gentle wind that's kind of always at your back and you can influence it. If you do certain things, go certain places and hang out with certain people. Frankly, if you say yes more often and you do stuff and become visible and become known, luck and chance are there. Now, all we all know awful examples of bad luck. I'm sure that happens and you just cross your fingers. But at the same time, I think luck is something often within your own control, not external to you. And then if you do certain things in certain ways, you increase the possibility of luck. You know, planning, I always say, will get you the tip of the iceberg. But luck and serendipity will get you the submerged bit of the iceberg, which, of course, is a bigger piece. We're nearing the end of our talk, Kingsley. This is obviously so important for for companies and individuals within those organizations. What, in your view, should companies be doing to create a better culture of networking? If there isn't yeah, look, a, I there think, is the course you said, but what can they do? Yeah. To? yeah. I mean, if companies really, you know, want to walk the walk and talk the talk, in other words, buy into the notion that networking is really important, I think they have to really think seriously about how do we create a networking culture. And one of the reasons for that is just to accept a simple fact. There's more smart people outside your company than inside your company, just by the numbers. And so there is this concept of network intelligence. If you want to find out what's happening out there, 
You need to use your staff and your employees. You need to encourage them to be out and about. You need to incentivize them, to reward them, to pay them, to give them lunch tickets and say, listen, go and find out what's happening in this sector, in this segment. I'm a big fan of Reid Hoffman, who founded LinkedIn. Um, and he, he's huge in this network intelligence concept. He also has another interesting concept, which is whenever he's hiring somebody for LinkedIn, they ask them, how are we going to help you get your next job? In other words, they recognize you're not going to be here for the rest of your life. So we're going to help you with your next job. So I think companies need to take that kind of approach. They need to um, develop alumni relationships, connect with people who used to work there and have moved on. There's a huge phenomenon of what we call boomerang employees, people who've worked for a while, very often with the major multinationals, move away and then actually move back. So that's important. Um, the company in the world that has done this alumni connectivity, or I sometimes call it diaspora connectivity, is McKinsey. So, you know, one in 30 people who join McKinsey make partner. The other 29 must leave. But McKinsey say, you're moving on. We're going to help you get your next job. And we're going to stay in touch with you throughout your entire career. And we're going to hold events and we're going to let you know. And if you change your job in 20 years, we're going to tell everybody in the network of McKinsey. And guess what happens? These people have a loyalty to the organization. They refer business back to the organization. Sometimes they go back and work there. I mean, it is extraordinary what they've done. They've 30,000 people in the McKinsey Global Alumni uh, Network. They have an office in Boston uh, run by a guy with a whole team of people, and they see this as powerful. So I think they're the sorts of things companies can do. They can open up their premises and properties and bring in lots of outside groups, diverse groups, you know, and see, I mean, these offices are empty in the evenings. They can use them for nonprofit events or uh, mentoring, volunteering. So I think there's, a, there's a, a range of things companies can grasp and do that will help. Yeah, so Kingsley, just before we finish up, folks are interested in getting in touch with you. What is the best way to reach out? Sure, thanks. Um, you know, <laughs> LinkedIn uh, is probably the best way or just uh, the Networking Institute. Um, I'm happy to chat to people. Uh, I run lots of courses and do lots of training, so always keen on having conversations around that topic. So Kingsley Aikens, uh, formerly of the IDA and CEO of the Ireland Funds and currently CEO of the Marketing the Marketing Institute, the Networking Institute. Networking Institute. There you go. <laughs> Freudian slip there, the Networking Institute, <laughs> but which does include a form of marketing and personal totally. branding. Totally. Thank you so much for joining us on the iTech Podcast. Thank you. It was a pleasure.